Hey sis, welcome to the Women Series Podcast. I'm your host, Holly Sinclair. This is a show where period talk is celebrated, feminism is the driver, and fertility doesn't just equal baby making. Join me and my colleagues as we explore health, wellness, and womanhood. A while ago, I did a speaking event for a women's biohacking conference, I think it was called, and I was fortunate enough to be able to speak with many other amazing speakers, and one of them was actually yourself, Dr. Anna, and I don't, ah. I don't <laughs> that's how I came across you, um, and I started going through all your stuff, and then I realised once I realised you were also speaking at the event that I actually have your best-selling book, The Hormone Fix. And I was like, this is like six degrees of separation right now. So I thought we've got to have Dr. Anna on the show. So welcome. Oh my gosh. So great to be here with you, Holly. I love what you do. I love your message and the energy you do it with. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to get into today's conversation to, talking about all things, you know, perimenopause, menopause, and also keto, which I know yes. is like your jam. Um, did you keto start greens. I, keto greens? I actually started my day today with a keto friendly meal. I hope, I think some eggs. Well, and tell me eggs and avocado. Is that a keto friendly meal? That is a keto friendly meal. I would have added more greens, like some sprouts or some kimchi or some sauerkraut to get wow. some fermented good digestibles in there, nice. especially with nursing, right? The, the, you got some good oils in there, but at, with nursing you really have to, uh, you know, bump up some of those fermented foods, feed that microbiome and adding those micronutrients, those minerals and stuff. So organ meats and yeah, good way to start my friend. Good way to start. Thank you, sister. I was like, what's going to make my brain work after not sleeping? I think eggs and avocado. <laughs> oh my gosh. How many hours is your babe sleeping? He's actually pretty good. He just has started doing this weird thing at 4am where he does like a disco dance and because we're co-sleeping, it's like, I can't not wake up, but then he kind of gets all this energy out of his system. And at 4.30, he goes back to sleep. It's very strange. That's so cute. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's adorable. <laughs> and you're like, oh, it's my babe. I know. I know. But um, all right. Well, I want to like, just jump straight into it this morning, because I know that this topic, as you said, off camera, like a lot of people don't talk about it, but everybody goes through it. <laughs> which is really strange, um, or as a woman anyway. And I think there's going to be so much that we need to explore today. So let's I just agree. start with the basics. Okay. Perimenopause, leading into that phase of your life, what is it? What do we need to be aware of? You know, I'll just let you start there. Yeah, thank you. You know, one of the things like perimenopause, and, and like I like to say, menopause is natural and mandatory. Every woman will experience it. And suffering is optional. Suffering mm -hmm. is optional. And I think the more we have this conversation, the more we have courageous women speaking about what works, what doesn't work, and not just powering through for the sake of all humanity, <laughs> that we will have, you know, we'll, we'll create a lot more health and happiness as a result of it. Uh, the perimenopause, when we speak about perimenopause, 
you know, first of all, terminology is terrible, y'all. Let's come up with some better terms. But we have the time period before menopause, and we use the word perimenopause for that, for whatever reason. And so age, like the, you know, plus or minus five to 15 years before menopause, the symptoms that are happening as a result of our natural hormonal shifts. So a decline in typically the ovarian production of progesterone. And Mm. so with that steepening decline of progesterone, we get this, this, um, siphoning out or this rapid decrease in progesterone because it's predominantly made by our ovaries. And then the adrenals really take over the brunt of the work um, in menopause and, and beyond. So the ovaries production, so we see the ovarian production of progesterone start to decrease. And with that comes the symptoms of what I like this you know, symptoms and period of what I, what I like to call neuroendocrine vulnerability, because what happens, and I'm a gynecologist. So when clients come into the office and they're like, Dr. Ann, I'm having anxiety, mood swings. My periods are irregular, more uncomfortable. I'm feeling more PMS. I'm having breakthrough bleeding or spotting, or my periods are, I'm having heavier cramps. And that's like, that's, those are red flags, but the, the period changes are one piece of it. The anxiety, depression, mood swings, um, I will say, is it bipolar or hormonal? And if you only hate your husband two weeks out of the month, it's most (laughs) likely your hormones, not necessarily your partner. So something, you know, something to keep in mind, our physiology affects our behavior. So that is so key because we don't think that like really can our hormones or can what we eat really affect how we think and our mood? A thousand percent. Mm. Yes. A thousand percent. Yes. So this progesterone, because progesterone is a neurologic, a neuroendocrine hormone too. It is brain protective. It is anti-inflammatory in so many ways. And it is a precursor to many of our other hormones. And it is depleted very rapidly when we're under stress because we sacrifice progesterone to make cortisol. And so with that shift, we also get a decline in our adrenal hormone DHEA, which goes on further to convert to estrogen and testosterone. So we see this shift and we say estrogen dominance, and it's really better term progesterone insufficiency or cortisol steel, or, you know, there's so much going on. And any woman going through this time of transition is likely dealing with children and work stress and and relationship issues and all kinds of stuff at the same time. So it does open up this kind of window of vulnerability that when we shift, when we shift how we're nurturing our body and our mind and our spirit and our soul, then we retain a lot more balance because as I like to say from my first book, The Hormone Fix, it takes more than hormones to fix our hormones, right? Mm. It takes more than hormones to fix our hormones. And while I'd like it to be all about our reproductive hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and even DHEA, it's really more about three master hormones, three master hormones. And we can affect those three with lifestyle changes and the way we eat and what we eat as well. I'm so glad you're bringing up stress. Um, I mean, I'm not at that point in my life yet where I'm having to talk about menopause like for myself, but I have read a lot about it. And I actually remember years ago, I read the book Primal Mind, Primal Body by Dr. Nora. I can never pronounce her last name. Gagardis. 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with that book, but it's a fan, oh, it's no. a fantastic book. But there was this one like snippet in it where she spoke about menopause for like a paragraph in the whole book. And all she basically said was how you go into menopause is how you experience menopause. And um, a lot of it had to do with if you're going into it in an adrenal fatigued state, then that's how you're going to, you're going to experience it horribly. So if you don't mind, like I would love to just explore a little bit deeper. How does stress and what is stress? That's a better question as well. Um, impact menopause? Because I always refer to my mum who she's past her menopause years now. She's in her mid 60s. But I always refer to that sort of age generation as the sandwich generation where they sort of eat, they eat like a sparrow breakfast and then they might have like a sandwich for lunch and then they eat like a sparrow amount of food for dinner and she'll snack on Chardonnay and some cheddar cheese. Um, and so to me, I'm like, that stress is, got, you know, under eating is stressful and, or to your point, not eating well is stressful. And then you've got all of these other stresses. So how does, yeah, how does that impact menopause? Yeah. And that's a really beautiful question. And what people don't realize, like significant stress can really push you into menopause sooner, mm. uh, post-traumatic stress, chronic everyday stress. And, and that's really a key. And I always like to say this hormonal transition of menopause is just the opposite spectrum of puberty. And we don't want to suppress it. We don't want to medicate it just like we don't want to medicate puberty. We want to make it as healthy as possible for our kids. We need to make it as healthy as possible for us, because our kids are watching us, number one, as a mom of four, I, I really have learned that the hard way too. So, so when we have stress, so stress, the predominant stress hormone that we talk around, there are others, but the predominant stress hormone is cortisol. Cortisol plays havoc with our thyroid. Mm. Cortisol is initially our anti-inflammatory, steroid hormones, anti-inflammatory. It's, you know, it wakes us up in the morning. It, we peak in the morning naturally with cortisol. It should wake us up, you know, somewhere between six and 8 a.m., not three or 4 a.m., but that's when we have, you know, cortisol or circadian uh, dysfunction, dysregulation, and we need to reset the circadian rhythm to first manage cortisol. But cortisol is one of the top three of the hormones that are governing our lives. And so with that, cortisol is also the most acidifying hormone. So it is catabolic. It breaks us down where our reproductive hormones, specifically progesterone, testosterone, and DHEA are anabolic. They keep our muscles strong. They keep our bones strong. And so I will give the example, you can look at any president before and after term, uh, whether it's four or eight years, and you can see a significant aging during that time. And that is cortisol. The collagen breaks down, muscle breaks down, wrinkles, loose skin elasticity, and just everyday stress. One of the things that I learned in my own journey is that you know, post-traumatic stress resurges in this time of perimenopause. And what research has shown, even looking at uh, female army veterans or military veterans, that women who have had, you know, either a post-traumatic stress um, or they've been to war, they experience a harder time going through menopause. And the reason is that cortisol becomes the ruling hormone. And with that, it, it, definitely, again, depleting progesterone, the balancing feel-good neuroprotective hormone. So if we have had PTSD, 
adverse childhood experiences, ACEs for short, we have a harder time going through menopause. And that's the whole piece of neuroendocrine vulnerability. So we have to work on healing that too, as we go through this transition. And the other pieces that I, that I write about uh, a lot in my book, The Hormone Fix, is that when cortisol goes up, oxytocin, a hormone of love connecting and bonding goes down. And many people recognize if they were in labor and delivery and we injected Pitocin to make those contractions and labor speed up, um, that that is oxytocin we're injecting. Mm. And so like as we go through labor, but our body's producing it naturally as well. And we deliver this beautiful baby, we are bonded to this baby with a love that no one could ever express to you because I mean, it's just amazing. You are bathed in this oxytocin hormone and that is imprinting that child to you. It is like, it is just a beautiful, beautiful experience. And it also, you know, oxytocin has pain relieving effects. So you forget the pain. It has, it's true. um, true. I've just experienced it. (laughs) You have, it has amnestic effects. So you again, forget the pain of delivery. So, Mm. you know, it's really, it's really a beautiful, it's really a beautiful hormone. It's also the most alkalinizing hormone of our body. So in contrast to cortisol, now the key thing is with chronic stress and PTSD, when cortisol is up for a long time, the paraventricular nucleus of the brain will say, okay, cortisol, you are frying me out. I've got to shut you down. And it works to suppress that cortisol production. So now you're in this, you know, sometimes it's been turned adrenal fatigue or burnout, but it's really a hypocortisol state. And when you're being suppressed that way, oxytocin's also low. So you get into this dangerous state where cortisol is low and oxytocin is low. And that feels like disconnect. That's the physiology of divorce. It's the physiology of burnout. It sounds like, hey, I know I love my husband. I just don't feel love for him. I know I love my kids, but I don't feel like doing anything with them. I I used to love going to my work and my job and my passion, but I don't feel like going in anymore. And that is that physiology of disconnect. And it is, it is, it is that, that key piece that if I hadn't gone through it, if I hadn't gone through trauma, PTSD, and experienced that physiology of disconnect that led to burnout of a career that I loved running two medical practices and a med spa Mm. and, um, a, a divorce, right? I, I knew I loved my husband. I didn't feel anything for him anymore. And that really created um, that. So that's where I started looking like what happened here physiologically? Why do, you know, so like we, we knew like over 70% of parents that lose a child um, experience divorce and we didn't want that to happen to us. And we thought we were being proactive, but I didn't understand the physiology of trauma. And I think fascinating. Powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is just like, I didn't know that about oxytocin being the most alkalizing hormone. That's fascinating. And how many women do you think actually experience that level of hormonal imbalance going into menopause in our Western society at the moment? Do you think it's majority? I think at, I think at the moment because of the pandemic mm. and the the fear and the chronic what's going to happen next or you know even now when's the next shutdown? Mm. You know, what le- you know what could you know, when is the shoe going to drop next? Like in our cancer patients, breast cancer, for instance, they're like, okay, we have to keep, you know, we had breast cancer on one 
breast, when's the breast cancer going to come back in the other breast or come back and you're always waiting for that other shoe to drop. That's chronic stress. Mm -hmm. And that creates this physiology. So again, once we're aware, we can then use our behavior and our lifestyle and our mindset to increase oxytocin and to reset our physiology, to empower our physiology, to feel love, joy, happiness, to be energized, connected and loved. Yeah. Wow. That's, I I just learned something new, which is awesome. I love that. Um, We're talking about the brain and and stress and how that impacts menopause. What is the connection there between uh, a woman's dropping progesterone and her GABA levels? Because does, I think, does that play a role in her sleep issues? Yeah. 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 And so the uh, reproductive hormones have a direct connection to our, um, psychologic hormones. So Mm -hmm. our, our neurologic hormones, and these are, you know, progesterone affects GABA. So that's why we'll, I'll often supplement for postpartum depression. I'll often supplement progesterone Mm -hmm. because progesterone helps you get a good night's sleep. Good night's sleep is restorative in general, but progesterone also increases allopregnenolone, which goes on to uh, stimulate GABA and you'll have more circulating GABA, which I always like to describe. It's you think of GABA, it's the feel good hormone. And if you ever watch the musical Mamma Mia, uh, you know, it's like the rock group ABBA. And it's just like, you just think of that. Oh, that just feels so good. You know, that good, feel good kind of rhythm. And that is what GABA does for us. It also helps us get a good night's sleep. It is that relaxing, calm, feel good hormone. And now testosterone affects your dopamine levels. So, and dopamine receptors. So if you have very low testosterone, you likely have low dopamine and low drive. You have depression, you lose, you feel like you've lost your edge. You don't have desire, sexual desire otherwise. And um, that really, you know, so dopamine testosterone connection. And then the third is estrogen. Estrogen affects our serotonin receptors and our serotonin levels. So often when women are coming in, I'll give you the example of a client um, who came into my practice in her mid thirties. So this early perimenopause, and this is after I learned, you know, so much of what I learned in my own journey. So typically like, so she came in at 36 years old and she's a mom of four, had four children, was running, you know, the finances for her husband's business and also doing carpool and very active volunteering. And she came in, she goes, Dr. Anna, I just don't feel like doing any of it. I mean, I, you know, I'm exhausted. I keep messing up on schedules and, you know, I know I'm off and I feel anxious, moody. I never want to have sex with my husband. And, um, PMS is really unbearable and, you know, help me. And I said, okay, Um, I was like, it's your hormones. Let's, let's fix this. And so the first thing I started doing was very similar to my keto green detox in my hormone fix book. And that is a modified elimination diet, very low inflammatory working with some intermittent fasting and, um, a a definitely liver phase one and phase two Mm -hmm. liver detoxification support adaptogenic superfoods like maca and my mighty maca plus 30. And that's a combination of of superfoods that help with your adrenal function and decrease inflammation, which is really powerful. And, and just with the dietary changes in that, she comes back in six weeks later, because I run all her labs. I said, come back in four to six weeks and we'll go over all your labs. 
And so when she comes back in, she goes, Dr. Hannah, I feel so much better. I didn't even know my period was coming. I feel like I have my life back. And the best thing she goes, my daughter, Sophia crawled into my lap and her daughter, Sophia was six. She crawled into my lap and she hugged me and she said, mama, you're smiling again. Oh, that's awesome. That's it. No drugs, no medication. Then mm. I still wanted to give her some bioidentical progesterone cream a little bit after that, and just to help her with deeper restorative sleep. But that was that was it. That wow. was it. And then you know, otherwise, I could have been a traditional physician and said, okay, well, let's prescribe you uh, SSRI or Prozac mm. or Zoloft or Celexa or one of the many that we have now that are available, and they're just nasty, really. And I or and or birth control pills to regulate her cycle and said, okay, then come back. And then she come back you know, really not feeling any mentally clearer. And, you know, I saw that time and time again, still having dysfunctional issues. Then we're like, okay, well, let's take dysfunctional bleeding issues. So then I say, okay, well, let's take out your uterus and just handle that, right? That's the traditional. And the, if you're over 35, many modern physicians still believe they should take out your ovaries to reduce your risk of ovarian cancer, oh which is incorrect. God. And so then you've set that person up for diabetes and heart disease and Alzheimer's and because women with, uh, yeah, with- Well, um, even like the esoteric, like issue of removing half the womb, you know, like what does that do to the feminine? in the, in the woman, as well as all the physiological ailments that that comes with. Yeah. So that's crazy. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's honestly how our training is. And mm. I um, recognize as I started doing this, I used to do like initially in my traditional practice, I used to do two to three surgeries per week, minor and major, like endometrial ablations, you know, lead procedures, laparoscopies, hysterectomies, all that good stuff. And, and, and as I got better with functional medicine and bioidentical hormone replacement, I had to only need to do two to three major surgeries per year. Wow. That's the impact of the, and that's the beauty, the empowerment of our body's ability to heal itself. Mm. So the uterus is a victim of hormonal imbalance, mm. right? Mm. It is not the cause. For it is sure. not the cause. So removing it without addressing the, you know, HPA axis, our hormonal flow, then, you know, we're still going to have other problems that come up. And certainly we do. There's research that came out recently that looked at women in, in menopause in general as a risk factor for diabetes, because mm. our risk, our, our levels, uh, risk for diabetes increases with menopause and heart disease. And, but if we've had our uterus removed, we have a significantly higher risk of diabetes. And if we've had our ovaries removed as well as our uterus, the risk, the risk is even higher. Mm. So the research said removing your uterus and ovaries increases your risk for diabetes. And I would now beg to differ. I would say it's the insulin resistance, the initial insulin resistant, which caused the dysfunctional uterine bleeding, which, which caused the need for the hysterectomy to begin with. Because when we become more insulin sensitive, hence keto green, low inflammatory, work on alkalinizing our physiology and um, a ketogenic type diet, healthy keto diet, we become more insulin sensitive and those bleeding dysfunctional issues go away along with it the brain fog Let's the take mood a quick swings break and mental stress from this knowledge bomb episode 
If you're enjoying the podcast and want to find more information on how to become your most fertile self, make sure you head to thewomenseries.com and check out our full access membership. Or if you're a fellow coach and want to upskill your knowledge in both business and functional medicine, I highly recommend the Institute of Health. You can find more info on them in the show notes. And now back to the show. There's so much overlap to what you're saying in regards to sort of perimenopause and menopause to actually just menstrual health issues in general, right? Like, because I'm just thinking even with insulin, PCOS is like such a, you know, common um, ailment that women get diagnosed with now, but really like, I mean, I don't, maybe we could go down this rabbit hole. I don't really, I think it's very overdiagnosed a lot of the time. And I think um, to your point, it's really just a byproduct of poor blood sugar management and that's sort of impacting all of those hormones that are in the ovary, like testosterone and so forth. Um, and which genes. Can be, and genes, yeah. Yeah, which can be rectified via your lifestyle and your nutritional changes. Yeah. So I was actually on a conversation with three by four genetics today and they do this genetic test and it's great because they run through this, you know, risk factor in this panel. And one of the things that came up in mind now, I am in this state, like I I'm so passionate about this because, you know, I watched my mom die with, you know, on 11 medications undergoing her second heart surgery. And, um, and she was only 67 years old and she'd had diabetes at that time for 20 years, both my parents died from diabetes. And so looking at the genetics, yes, I have all the markers for diabetes. And at one point I was well over 240 pounds. Surely if I had gone to another physician, they would have said I was PCOS or PCOS as you call it. I, um, you know, my hemoglobin A1C was rising. And so it was on that track, right? Because that's what my genes were indicating in the environment in which I was living, right? But these aren't fat genes, diabetes genes, heart disease genes. These are survival genes, Mm. warrior genes, Amazonian genes for a lot of my young girls, teenagers, because those symptoms start to flourish once puberty hits. I would tell them you've got Pocahontas genes or Milan genes or Amazonian genes, warrior, you are meant to be a leader. And so looking at the genetics today, because now you get some more, um, uh, uh, intelligent reports on some of these genetic testing. I was like, okay, look, you know, look at my risk factors for PCOS. You go, oh yeah, you've got the genes there. And, and I said, okay, well, let's look at testosterone conversion. And I have a deficiency in the enzyme or the ability to make the enzyme aromatase. So y'all listen here. I know I'm getting techie, but I love I'll, it. Float, hold with me a second. So testosterone will convert to estrogen men too. testosterone converts to estrogen. So, and so testosterone converts to estrogen with aromatase hormone. And so, um, in many clients with polycystic ovarian syndrome, they have a deficiency in this ability to make aromatase. So what does that mean? Well, it will push more towards the testosterone conversion to dihydrotestosterone, which is the more potent male hormone that often cause the andro, uh, the alopecia, androgenic balding or mm. loss of hair around the crown, the forehead, the sides of the head, the temple area. So you see that hair loss. You also see acne right? Adult acne, teen acne. You see that, you see that weight gain. And so you have, but you also have stronger bones. You also have a sharp intellect. You also have the ability to do more endurance strength training, things like that. So it's pretty cool. So if we shift 
the way we eat, think, and live to acknowledge that. And cortisol increases that conversion. Stress increases that conversion exponentially. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you know, so that's another key piece too. In stress, cortisol increases the enzymatic conversion from testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. So you pile that on and you can again, get weight gain, acne, hair loss, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And And if we can look at our genes as being, you know, that pathway as being pathologic and I'm like, huh, very cool. You know, I use that to my advantage. And so with intermittent fasting, right. Using lots of good alkalinizers, greens and mindset to focus on oxytocin production and reduce cortisol production. So deep breathing, because I said a lot, we can take a deep breath now. It's like, (laughs) (sighs) so good. Right. So good. So, you know, we can focus on what, you know, what good these genes can do in the right environment. So we're designed to survive. We are not designed for the standard American um, lifestyle. So it's so interesting. There's just so many different ways in which you can sort of go at these chronic women's health issues that, you know, to your point, if if someone just goes into the stock standard physician's room, they're probably not going to get anywhere near about this amount of information, right? Um, just circling back to that for a second, because you mentioned that that client um, who was 36 was in early perimenopause. Are we seeing that taking place earlier and earlier in yeah. women? Right. And, and is yeah, that because definitely. of stress? Well, it's uh, that would be one piece of it. But I would think and even I surmise that an even bigger piece is endocrine disruptors. Plastic, phthalates, Mm. chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, parabens, all the endocrine disruptors. And we know that, you know, this is transmitted in through our skin, through our lungs, through contact or water, uh, through products, clothing, detergents, all of those things. And when we look at, there was a study that was done, oh my gosh, in 2010, and it looked at umbilical cord blood samples. And so you having just had a baby and me just having had a grandbaby, um, it's been amazing. But, you know, if we consider there were 287 toxic chemicals in that umbilical cord blood, and it may take generations for some of these chemicals to clear. Dr. Learen Keneally says seven generations, seven generations, but now what other exposures are there? And these endocrine disruptors that we know that affect our crops, affect our animals, increase feminization, increase Mm. infertility, increase tumors and diabetes and insulin resistance. So that adds to the hormonal cycle. In med school, I learned that menopause is age 52 for non-smokers, 42 for smokers, and also 42, around 42 for people with endometriosis. And so 52 plus or minus two to maybe five years. In clinical practice, what we've seen and what I know from other gynecologists and what's being reported now, uh, three decades since medical school, is that change is happening 15 years earlier. But the literature hasn't caught up with that. And so women aren't being diagnosed, treated, or having their bodies empowered, a detoxification regimen, a gut healing regimen. These are critical to hormone balance. I mean, Mm. I can't get someone's hormones balanced unless I cleanse them, support liver detoxification, support the gut microbiome. So that's critical. And that also affects the vaginal microbiome, which is essential for life. Mm. Can I tell you? 
So yeah. the vagina is so important. And for sexual health post-menopause, you know, early vaginal dryness, decrease in orgasm. And, you know, we're trying to do all these chemicals and stuff and really comes down to nature. And that's where I've used and created some really good bioidenticals to help with that because there's nothing out there. Mm. Like men have Viagra, but that's only, you know, one thing. And, and for women, you know, we're, we're much more complicated than men. So it's true. I'm glad you're bringing up the microbiome because one thing I see a lot with my clients is there's a lot of hormonal imbalance going on, but for the most part, uh, I mean, other than most people aren't eating well (laughs) and their lifestyles aren't good. The other thing that I see all the time is digestive issues. And there's such a like overlap between what's going on with your microbiome and then how your hormones are then adapting to that environment. Um, Could you touch on sort of how that influences one another? Oh, hang on. I've just lost you, Anna. I don't know why. There we go. Oh, there you are. (laughs) The um, microbiome is, is really key for hormone production. I mean, we think that the, well, we think the microbiome that's trillions of cells in our body and the gut bacteria Um, there's also, you know, we have the gut bacteria and within that we have the estrobilome. Mm. So key different types and functions of bacteria to detoxify, produce estrogen. Also fat is, you know, estrogen is produced from fat. We used to think that was just a, you know, like, I don't know, storage. Now we know that it's an endocrine hormone and that's a really important piece of the puzzle Mm. too. So when we have a strict, for example, carnivore, keto type diet or or diet deficient in plant foods, there's decreased diversity in the gut microbiome. And that decreased diversity is associated with more immune issues, more colds, flus, uh, more inflammatory diseases, and all cause mortality and rapid aging. When we have more uh, variety in our healthy plant-based, I'm going to say lower carbohydrate, low sugar plant-based foods, such as like the ones that help support estrogen detoxification, like cruciferous vegetables, for instance, that's being cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, kale, cabbage, maca. I mean, these are all really good for estrogen detoxification. Mm. So, and sprouts and fermented foods, like I said at the beginning to feed the gut microbiome. So, so important. And, um, and so then we create more microbial diversity within the gut. And that is supports your immune system, supports hormone detoxification. In fact, I'll tell you, Holly, yesterday in my Girlfriend Doctor Club, I have a Girlfriend Doctor Club membership online. So we do a live Zoom call uh, twice, again, twice a month. And um, uh, one of our members came on and she was looking at her hormonal analysis through a urine test called the Dutch test. Mm-hmm. And her result, you know, she had was way high in estrogen, way low in progesterone. And she goes, what should I do? We said, we definitely want to balance that out, but that's only part of the picture. Tell me about your estrogen detoxification. Let, let's see what that is. And when we look at just estrogens, not just enough to look at your estradiol, it's important to look at your 2,4,16-hydroxyamethoxyestrogen. That is how your estrogen is being removed from your system. And so uh, her pathways were excellent. She was 2-hydroxyestrogen dominant, which is what we want. Mm-hmm. And her 4 and 16 numbers were low. Those are the more unhealthy pathways, especially the 4. If you're high in the 4, 
hydroxy or methoxy hydroxyestrogen, you're at higher risk for breast cancer, according, according to early studies that we've known now for over 15 years. So there's that piece of the puzzle. So we can be, okay, well, you're detoxifying the estrogen. We need to balance out your progesterone, but also let's look if you're getting estrogen from other things, your cosmetics, your mm. skincare, are you drinking out of plastic bottles? Are you drinking a cup of coffee with a plastic lid on it? You know, are you touching receipts at the store? I mean, all of those things can, can um, affect your estrogen receptors. So then you become more estrogen dominant. So we have to clear those support liver detox. And, but that was good news. So even though she was estrogen dominant, so to speak, she has, you know, it could say with some confidence, lower risk of, of uh, breast cancer, but we still have to support and balance mm. her hormones. But if she I, wasn't clearing well, we would have to, you know, we would have to uh, work with food, lifestyle, and additional nutritional support. It's so interesting. I actually had Dr. Carrie Jones on the show. So who was obviously, yeah. So if you haven't listened to that episode, guys, go back and have a listen because Carrie um, is, she, I think she's the head of Dutch or she's the main medical gal who uh runs the dutch testing company so go and have a listen but you know dutch testing is such a great way to your point to be able to establish you know are the pathways blocked or is there an issue with the pathway or is it just that you're overloaded with the end byproduct which is estrogen um and being able to determine what line of action you take from that because everybody's different and i think this is sort of where you know people can get sound bites and say well i'm estrogen dominant or I'm stressed or what, whatever the soundbite might be. And they take a very superficial approach to healing themselves. But there's so many layers that you have to be aware of. And you can only do that if you're working with somebody like Dr. Anna, you know, or somebody who's got really good experience looking at this stuff, um, which sort of brings me into the next question around, you know, we've been talking about nutrition and how to fix it all holistically. But I do know that there are times when women do probably need to use some bioidentical hormones. Um, what is the difference between bioidentical hormones and non-bioidentical hormones? I guess that's the easiest way to say it. And why would you suggest somebody to use a bioidentical over not one? So I think it would be, it's just like, why would we eat food versus Franken food, right? Fake food. You know, why would we, you know, choose something synthetic over something natural? And it can be marketing, it could be, you know, persuasion, it could be, but it's not innate to our body. Mm. And things that aren't innate and organic in origin, like, you know, biochemically organic, so to speak, you know, that are similar to what our body makes are just never going to do the good that the natural will do for our body. And I am a hormone prescriber. I was trained in traditional medicine at Emory University and OBGYN board certified and, um, you know, was trained with uh, using synthetic hormones predominantly and not, there was no clarification or explanation of the differences. However, in clinical practice when, and I was a small town doc. I was National Health Service Corps. I went to, I, you know, I practiced in a small town and I worked with some of the poorest of the poor and some of the richest of the rich, but I um, had to get really creative. And I started seeing because there was no other, I was just me in my practice, no other docs. 
And so I started seeing like, okay, this isn't really working. And let's look at, you know, what does the research say? What's a better way to do this? And that really led me into bioidentical hormone replacement. And what I started understanding is that it's not the bioidentical hormones themselves. Like the bioidentical hormones, what do we use for diabetics? Ideally, we use insulin, right? Mm. They're trying to create all these different kinds, but they never work as good as insulin itself without consequence. Same with thyroid. What do we want to use? A bioidentical thyroid supplement, not something that mimics, you know, affects your thyroid in an adverse way. You're going to have a lot of other problems. So why wouldn't we do the same for estrogen and progesterone and testosterone? You know, we, that is just natural to us. So, um, it, so using compounding pharmacy, and there are many prescription available bioidenticals now also, but, you know, since I would always choose first and foremost, a bioidentical over a synthetic. Mm. Always. It works better, better always, always, mm. unless so I was having an issue, like there was something and it wasn't working or I needed a faster fix, like an injection of a progestin to stop a very significant bleed and then work on it from there. Because mm. so many, I mean, if I'm just thinking about my mom and her girlfriends, so many of them went on HRT um, and I don't, you know, I know that there's a lot of uh, backlash now around the usage of HRT because to your point, yeah, they, it is also synthetic. Oh, there you go. You've gone again. Okay. Oh, the synthetic go. ones don't work as well. Yeah. And they have more consequences. Mm. So that's the key to go to bioidentical. Now, the other flip side is that younger and younger uh, people are more observant and like, okay, I'm not going to go that route with the synthetics. I'm going to go with the bioidenticals. But then you're starting too early with like testosterone and progesterone. You're starting too early. And that negatively feeds back on your body's production. That's key. Mm. Men too. I see this a lot. And um, you always have to address what's the underlying reason your hormones are low or out of balance, cleanse that, and then, and then go on, you mm. know, and then see, do you need something else, but address the underlying reason. Mm. Yeah. It's, that. it's like, don't take the allopathic mindset into a holistic space of, okay, well, is there a pill to fix this ill? Okay, well, is there a supplement to fix this ill? Like it's still the same mindset, right? So what you're saying is like change your nutrition, get some sleep, do your mindset. And then if there's still problems persisting, then we can look at bioidentical hormones or yeah. whichever. Um, and that's basically the 1%, Holly, right? You right. Know, like when, as I started to do this, when did I need to intervene? You know, like 90% was in my patients control with their lifestyle and diet. Yeah, and wow. I can, sometimes I say 99%, but I'm too egotistical. So I like <laughs> to claim that, okay, 10% is me helping you with this, whatever I'm writing on the prescription pad, if I needed to write anything. So, mm. but really I often, it, I don't need to like, it, essentially from stress, urinary incontinence was a big issue mm. using bioidentical hormones. One of the reasons I created my product, Jolva, which has DHEA in it and plant stem cells to use to help with incontinence patients. So I would have good, healthy tissue to operate on. My patients would come back for the pre-op and say, Dr. Anna, I'm not having leaking anymore. I'm like, I can't operate. Darn. Wow. Damn. <laughs> That's how powerful I know. I know wow. that's how powerful it is. Our body's ability to rejuvenate at any age mm. is amazing. Mm. What is the keto greens? We've been talking uh, about keto. it a lot. What, yeah, what, so what is that? 
Yeah. So keto green is my spin on uh, a healthy key for a healthy ketogenic diet. So mm. for example, it is adding the alkalinizers and I have clients check like with urine pH, these are urine pH strips and mm-hmm. they have ketone uh, measure for ketone measure for pH. And I like to, you are better in health in general, when you have an alkaline urine pH, a pH of the urine seven or greater. And it's also a measure of stress. It's also a measure of nutrient insufficiency. So you want to get that pH up. When you're on a ketogenic diet, you can become very acidic because again, can be very catabolic and too much intermittent fasting, too much fats, you know, that can increase your cortisol. Mm. So you want to balance, you always want to balance that out and you want to balance out plant foods. I mean, again, men and women are different. Men can do a straight keto diet longer because they have 10 times as much testosterone. That's going to keep them from breaking down muscle, connective tissue, collagen, and, you know, women, you know, we will break down, you know, so much faster. Hmm. So the alkalinizing part is really key and the ketogenic part with intermittent fasting. So let me give you a day in the life. And I actually have a link. There's um, dranna.com forward slash keto calc. So for keto calculator, keto calc, well, you can go through and see a day in your life, what that would feel like. And so essentially with intermittent fasting around 13 to like work up to 16 hours between dinner the night before. And when you break fast and you um, break fast with like what you ate this morning, and I would add some sprouts and some olive oil and maybe some kimchi or sauerkraut onto that, Mm -hmm. um, or smoked salmon with capers and red onions on a bed of arugula drizzled with olive oil and some um, avocado on the side. Perfect, right? That sounds Yum, good. <laughs> I know. And then you can have a second and or third meal, but usually when you get good at this, you're not hungry when your, your body's used to it. You're not hungry. So you may just end up in two meals a day, two or three meals, but no more snacking. So, cause we want that. If you'd like to keep listening to this episode, please head over to Patreon where for $5 a month, you get unlimited access. You can also find full access to the podcast, as well as my courses, multiple webinars, and ebooks at thewomenseries.com. As always, please remember this podcast is for informational purposes only. You should seek professional advice for any health related issues. Thank you for supporting me and my desire to make all women healthy, fertile, and whole.